Those rigid restraint behaviors are all around it being black and white. There's good foods, there's bad foods, there's off the plan, there's on the plan. While the flexible approach is, you know, I'm going to make the best of the current constraints of this situation. So for example, I'm, I've got a diet plan. That's great. I'm going to follow it. Oh, my old college buddy is in town and I haven't seen them in 10 years. I'm going to go out to dinner with them. And today, I'm going to allow myself to eat a little more. And then the next few days, I'll, I'll make up for that. Nothing extreme, but I'm, I'm just going to kind of pick my spots. And I'm not going to see that as a failure. I'm going to see those as constraints around my ability to follow my diet. And I'm going to modify within that. So it has elements of auto-regulation. It has elements of being able to look at the bigger picture and the long-term outcome rather than the short-term reality. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 114, with Eric Helms. And this episode was a particularly fun one for me because Eric's voice is one I've been listening to a lot on the Iron Culture podcast, which he co-hosts with Omar Isuf. And it's always funny to interview people that I sort of know super well but have never spoken to before. So Eric is a research fellow at the Sports Performance Research Institute, New Zealand, at the Auckland University of Technology in the strength and conditioning and sports physiology and nutrition research groups. He's also the director and chief science officer of 3DMJ, which is an organization devoted to strength training, coaching, and education and building a community around all of those things. He's also a competitive bodybuilder, co-host of the podcast I just mentioned, Iron Culture, which you definitely have to check out, and also a founding editor and reviewer for Mass, or Monthly Applications in Strength Sport, which I also talked about in a recent episode with his arch nemesis slash close friend, Eric Trexler, uh, in an earlier episode. But in this episode... Eric and I talk about one of his many areas of expertise, and that is nutrition. He's also the author of a couple of great books, The Muscle and Strength Pyramid, Nutrition, and then Training. And we talk about nutrition in this episode. Particularly, we talk about various approaches to structuring one's diet, like intuitive eating or if it fits your macros, which is what I'm much more closely aligned with. And then we go into all sorts of specific questions like how much protein you should be consuming, whether you should be taking creatine or BCAAs. Uh, and then there are some more intellectually motivated questions that we get into, like the role of meta-analyses in sports science. But you can keep up with Eric on Twitter, on Instagram at Helms3DMJ. Like I mentioned, you also need to listen to Iron Culture if you're at all invested in the iron game of weightlifting or bodybuilding, or if you're just a strength enthusiast like me. Now, without any, out, any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Eric. Your PhD and MPhil are in strength and conditioning from the Auckland University of Technology, which is where you're at right now, right? Yeah, I'm at Auckland University of Technology or AUT. Technically, the uh, if you look at my degrees, they're in sport and exercise. Um, and then it's just which research group did you do your PhD under? So my uh, 
MPhil could be seen as sports physiology and nutrition or strength and conditioning, depending upon who my supervisors were and whether you're focused more on the population and the outcomes I'm looking at or more the nutritional manipulation that we did. And then my PhD is definitely in the realm of strength and conditioning. So I'm a bit of a nutrition and exercise science guy, but I tend to see myself as a physique and strength sports scientist, if you will. Mm -hmm. And Eric Trexler, your friend, as you know, so he was recently on the show and we talked about his doctoral training at Chapel Hill, but his work was much more geared toward nutrition. So, which makes me wonder what sort of training does one go through for a PhD in, well, the, the strength and physique stuff that you consider yourself as specializing in. And the reason I ask, and I think it's a really important question, especially because a lot of my audience doesn't come from this domain, is that I have the sense from talking to my friends that most people think that all training knowledge really comes from the gym and it's just experience. And that's that's naturally part of it. But they don't realize how much of it is generated in academia. Though, of course, that's not to say that what you see at a Planet Fitness all comes from academia. No, uh, your, your typical person at Planet Fitness is not going, let me check PubMed right now to see uh, what, what ideas I should have from my chest day. Um, and you have like 67 papers or something on PubMed. I was looking. There's, there's, there's a fair number. Yeah, I, 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 I like collaborating with people. Um, and, um, and I've been in doing that since around 2012. So it's actually, believe it or not, 11 years of, of academic work now. Um, to answer your question, this is actually kind of interesting because there's a distinction between doing your PhD in say North America or doing your PhD in say Europe or Oceania, like I did Australia, New Zealand. Um, when you get outside of the US and Canada, sometimes depending on where you're at, the PhD is a little harder to get into. You have to already have completed a major research project in your area. Um, and it's considered basically a little more of a terminal degree and it's purely a research degree. So there's, there's no classes. Uh, there is just basically working on your proposal and then two to three years of data collection, depending on, on your field. Um, and the reason I have an MPhil, which many people probably won't be familiar with similar to an MRes or a master's of research. It's basically a one year uh, research project in the same way that a PhD is a three or four year research project is because the masters that I did initially, actually on paper, I have two masters, the masters I did in the States in, um, in exercise science didn't have a thesis component. So that's pretty rare outside of the U S when you have a, like a, a taught masters only, um, especially in certain fields. So when I came to, or when I was looking to do my doctorate and I had a really good connection with the advisor, uh, at John, John Cronin, who is a, a pretty legendary sports scientist in the field of strength and power. Anyway, he was, uh, he still is at AUT. And when I contacted him, we were kind of looking at what is my, my current transcripts. Although I have a bachelor's and a master's, I wasn't qualified to go directly into the PhD. So I had to do an MPhil which I loved because it allowed me to kind of diversify my interests. And the, the whole process is kind of like on the job training rather than taking courses in study design or statistics or things like that. Um, so I was mentored in how to conduct research during my MPhil. And specifically, I got mentored on how to do things like uh, anthropometry 
So high quality uh, assessments of skin fold thicknesses, body composition, um, uh, administering like some basic psychometrics. We use the DALDA and the POMS, which are just ways of assessing. Those are just the names of, of um, quantitative uh, surveys that you give regularly to assess someone's stress levels relative to baseline. And then also what's called a mid-thigh pull, uh, which is a isometric uh, assessment of your maximal force, basically right at the position of your mid-thigh, hence a mid-thigh pull. You're standing on a force plate, immovable bar, and then you're getting a peak force value. And it's a pretty strong correlatory value with like maximal strength and other full body movements like a deadlift squat or the Olympic lifts. So that in addition to just having the experience of running a nutritional intervention, um, basically writing meal plans for people and communicating with them and trying to do the best I could to keep them on track with the nutritional intervention they were you know, randomly assigned to and the crossover I did for my master's. Uh, and then the analysis I did, all that was kind of like on the job training. And the PhD is essentially an extended version of that. Um, difference at AUT is that your proposal for your MPhil happens like as you enter. So you do your application to start at the university, as well as what's called a PGR1, which just means postgraduate research form one, which is your entrance and proposal. So you say, here's what I'm going to do. It's like a 5,000 word document. And if that gets approved and once it's approved, then you start and you kind of hit the ground running with this one year research project. The difference with the PhD is you do that in the first six to nine months and you're kind of a PhD student then you become a PhD candidate and then you have two to three years to finish the rest of your research. So uh, the training that I had in my MPhil was, was different than what I needed for my PhD, but I still kind of had the basic ropes down of what it is to be a, a novice researcher. And then because I went from a nutritional manipulation of, of varying protein intakes and looking at changes in anthropometry and, and maximal force to, hey, let's take a look at power lifters, which is what I did for my PhD and assess different training uh, regimes and see what happens there. Then I got to be familiar with 1RM testing, uh, RPE, um, a novel form of RPE that we use in, in lifting specifically based upon how close to, some, to failure someone thinks they are. Uh, and then ultrasound assessments of changes in muscle thickness and more anthropometry and just basically the ins and outs of how to run a training study, which kind of feels like being a full-time personal trainer who's not allowed to modify exercises or things like you normally would for, for keeping the study consistent. So that's essentially what I, what I did for my, the last, you know, for the, for that four and a half year period of doing my MPhil and PhD. The anthropometric work that you did is what really jumps out at me because I will have mentioned this already, I'm sure in the introduction, but in addition to a researcher, you're also a bodybuilder. And that goes into what I would like to discuss next, which is your book, uh, The Muscle and Strength Pyramid Nutrition. So something I don't think that people realize is that bodybuilders are, this is at least how I feel, bodybuilders are who you should go to for diet advice, whether that's uh, trying to lose weight or to gain weight. And now some, some bodybuilders might... Okay, bodybuilders in general might be a little bit too strong because some might be crazy sort of or, or irresponsible, but in general, maybe the more scientifically minded of them, they've really perfected uh, weight loss and weight gain down to uh, something of a science. Is that how you see things? 
No, <laughs> to oh, be honest. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, and, and the reason is, is that um, bodybuilders operate within a paradigm of they are going to lose a whole bunch of weight and then purposely regain it back. So uh, built into the structure of our sport is a cyclical process. And most people who are interested in weight loss are looking to break a cycle, not continue it. So the cut bulk model uh, came out of competitive bodybuilding where someone needs to get really, 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 really lean. And then they literally need to put that weight back on. And they get so lean that their, their psychology, their social systems, and their physiology is pushing every single signal that our body can to say, hey, gain weight as rapidly as you can. The main thing you care about right now is cake. So um, some of those tools are far more extreme and they don't have any assumption of long-term maintenance of weight loss or adherence. And when you look at the research on weight loss, it's pretty grim um, when you look at long-term weight loss maintenance. Most people who are interested in weight loss are following something that kind of was inherited from the bodybuilding world. And people don't have much of an issue losing weight initially. They have a, a lot of struggles keeping it off. So um, when we look at some of the, the techniques and tools that have come out of the research, which are really, really good at weight loss maintenance, they are actually distinct to some degree uh, with, with weight loss itself, um, like acceptance-based therapy, uh, having a multidisciplinary team, um, you know, and a large educational component, not necessarily just following a meal plan or following macros. Um, I mean, I think bodybuilders are excellent at optimizing the weight loss period itself to maintain maximal uh, muscle mass and performance. Um, which kind of go hand in hand to some degree. So I would agree on that front. But for the average person who wants a healthier relationship with uh, their body, food, and wants long-term weight loss maintenance, I'd say, hey, a registered dietitian is probably would be my first choice versus, you know, Mr. Ohio or something like that. Okay, no, that that's totally fair. I didn't mean to suggest that the average person should be following the the cutting and bulking cycle or that they should be trying to get down to 3% or so. But when I think about the ideal way to go from a state of overweight to a state of say 10 or 12% body fat, you'd, you'd do well to follow your book or Lane Norton or uh, Stronger by Science or you, you know what I'm saying? That's That's more what I had in mind. And I also totally agree that yeah, a lot of people's body issues stem from deep personal problems that talking to Mr. Ohio isn't going to help with, but a therapist will. Yeah. And also managing where we're at in society. So um, bodybuilders typically live outside, outside of typical societal norms. You know, they have a very different way of eating. Um, their life revolves around training. And I remember when I was a young personal trainer, the only real solution I had, you know, the saying of to the man with a hammer, the world looks like nail or the world's problems all look like nails was, okay, well, if I make people bodybuilders and they'll be fine. So you just need to train, you know, four days a week, five days a week, six days a week. You need to care about that primarily and you need to completely overhaul your diet. And here's the list of good foods. And even when I was a little, you know, less educated and misguided, I think I could port over more recent, more flexible knowledge and it still wouldn't be a great fit. Because the reality is, is that most people aren't going to completely modify what their their values are and what their principal interests in life. They may enjoy working out to some degree. 
But I think expecting people to become bodybuilder like is only going to be a good fit for the people it's a good fit for. And that's great for them. But I think most people need to find a way to live a little more in harmony with a environment that is not conducive to weight maintenance. You know, we have readily available access to affordable, hyper palatable foods. And, you know, we can meet up and have conversations with people across the world like you and I, which is, which is great, man. But at the same time, it also means that I cannot move at all and, and work. You know, I, I often say like, hey, if I was a bodybuilding coach um, back in 1990, I would be probably in Venice Beach working 40 hours a week on the gym floor, you know, but that hasn't been the case for a long time. I work when I was a full-time bodybuilding coach before I moved more into kind of the science communication and uh, scientific support for uh, the, the coaches I work with at 3DMJ, I was, you know, I was working 40 hours a week sitting in front of my computer. So it's very similar to when I became an academic. So it's, it's an interesting thing to say, I'm a sports coach. What do you do all day? Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm on, I'm on my computer. So I think in the modern environment where we get dysregulated hunger signals from being inactive, our energy expenditure is lower because we're inactive. Um, we have a whole bunch of cues encouraging us to eat more and we have affordable food that tastes great. I mean, you eat food and it makes you want to eat more. That's not the way that's supposed to work, right? So I think it, there's a lot of chips stacked, no, no pun intended, um, against you. And I think the some of the most important things that you need is to learn how to operate within that environment rather than go, right, I'm going to join a subculture that is basically saying I live separate from that. Um, and like I said, it's, there's nothing wrong with if you can do that, but I think it's the minority of people who can kind of emulate that bodybuilding lifestyle. Mm -hmm. uh, another good point that you have that I, I neglected to factor into my uh, idea about bodybuilders being the people you should go to for diet and nutrition advice is that, as you mentioned, bodybuilders aren't so concerned typically with the weight maintenance phase. And that is probably the most important phase for most people, since it's what ideally, since they're not bulking and cutting, that's the phase they have to learn to live in. hundred percent. Mm -hmm. And, but now restricting ourselves, at least for the moment to bodybuilders and strength athletes or any athletes for that matter, they might go about monitoring their nutrition in many different ways. I, me personally, at the moment, I'm probably pretty close to the if it fits your macro macros kind of strategy. And for those who don't know, that means I have a set number of grams of fat, uh, protein, carbohydrate, maybe fiber that I'm trying to hit each day. And beyond that, I don't really have any dietary restrictions. And this, as I see it, so maybe there's, there's a landscape of diet possibilities, but I see this as placing me between two ends of a spectrum. So on the one hand, there are people who are, let's say, uh, militant about their 100 supplements down to the milligram, and they have their diet planned out weeks in advance and no room for spontaneity. And then on the other hand, there's the intuitive eater who doesn't do too much tracking at all, but I guess I'll say listens to their body. Where, I'm curious, do you fit on this spectrum these days? Probably closer to the person who is not tracking. Um, and that's mainly because I tracked for so long and um, I was able to incorporate 
that experience into uh, connecting it with a certain level of hunger, energy, fullness, and at different ranges of body fat across the spectrum because your kind of baseline when you're shredded is if you were to eat quote unquote intuitively, you'd be in a surplus, right? Because uh, that's where your body is trying to drive you towards. Um, so I also think that most of the people who fall if in, in the paradigm of like bodybuilding nutrition specifically, so we're not talking about intuitive eating TM, which is a whole separate thing, but people who don't track, but manipulate their body composition for the purposes of bodybuilding. And they're more on that side of the spectrum, which you, which you laid out. Um, they typically have experience with tracking and they've, uh, not to denigrate anyone who is still tracking, they've kind of evolved past that in, in my opinion. Um, and they've enabled it to, they, they've been able to customize that a little more to, uh, the day-to-day -day changes. I, I consider it a form of auto-regulation, right? So in the same way that your strength on any given day might fluctuate, say 10%, like let's say today you can squat 500 pounds, but tomorrow you're fatigued or whatever reason it's 475. And then two days later, it might be 510, 520, um, being able to gauge that and use tools like RPE or something like that to choose the right load on the bar that day for your strength levels is kind of similar to the fact that our energy expenditure varies pretty substantially day to day. Um, and, you know, being able to eat in a consistent surplus or at maintenance or in a deficit uh, by being aware of what your body signals tell you is something that's important. But that also comes from having an idea of tracking. So it takes me about two minutes without tracking all day to reflect back on what I ate and be, say, if I had to guess 90% accurate on my caloric intake, um, which is probably pretty similar if I was actually tracking and weighing my foods because there's inherent error, you know, in every step of the process of tracking. So I personally, uh, <laughs> dog got mad at the cat while he was sleeping. You don't wake me up, bro. Um, yeah. so, so I personally, I, I may track at certain phases of contest prep, which for those who don't know, I am currently prepping for a bodybuilding show, but right now I'm more looking at, uh, the outcome rather than necessarily the day to day, uh, box ticking. So I'm looking for a certain rate of weight loss. Uh, and I'm looking to be able to perform in the gym a certain way. And I know what that roughly feels like. I can tell when I look and feel depleted. So there's it's a, it's a large experience component here. Um, but something I would say is that, you know, in every sport, maybe except for <laughs> bodybuilding where people are very, very neurotic, um, we tend to praise uh, when an athlete is good at listening to their body. And that's the process of moving from being a novice athlete to a very experienced one is having better body awareness and being able to connect on a more quote unquote intuitive level, which is really just, you know, pattern recognition um, when you think about it. So therefore, by definition, it takes experience to kind of do that. Um, my colleague, Alberto Nunez, who's one of the other coaches at 3DMJ, and he did his first show is the same first show I did. So we've kind of been in the game, quote unquote, for a similar amount of time. He just recently competed and competed at the highest level. He placed fifth in the middleweight class in WNBF Worlds, which is the most competitive division at the most competitive show in the most competitive natural bodybuilding organization. Placing top five is a pretty big deal. Um, and he didn't track his nutrition at all throughout that whole process. And he's known as one of the more uh, conditioned or lean competitors who competes. And I did something similar in 2019, but I got to a point where I was like, you know, I want to track just because 
maybe I'm doing this wrong. And it was more of a fear-based decision. So in 2023, now that I'm prepping again, I'm trying to see like in working with Birdo, can I leverage my my experiences here? And it's a different process. So Birdo's coaching me and he will give me uh, like outcomes. Like, hey, I want this week, let's, let's not lose any weight. Let's just stick at maintenance. Let's recover because you just lost a fair amount of weight and you're traveling and you cross some time zones, you're getting poor sleep. Let's get you to see your performance bounce back. Let's get your, you know, your sleep in order. And then once we've had a week there, we can kind of pull the rug out from underneath you and we'll 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 get back into losing, say, you know, one percentage of your body weight per week. Let's let's have that as a target and we'll run that for a month. And I want you to have high days on these days before your your training sessions where you're training your most important muscle groups. And what that high day looks like, what those low days look like, I kind of decide, and I decide in an intuitive sense, so long as I'm meeting those goal outcomes. Um, so it is uh, a more intuitive process, but it ends up being very similar to if I was tracking macros, except the energy fluctuates as needed on a day-to-day. And I eat very similar on a day-to-day basis. And it's not like I sit down and like, I'm going to eat some chips. It's more like I'm still having that kind of similar meal structure that I've had ever since I was uh, following a more if it fits your macros-based approach. So hopefully that answers your question in probably more detail than you were even asking for. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a surprising answer. It's not what I was expecting. I was expecting that you would have said that the your goal, so to speak, maybe it's not explicitly formulated, but your goal is to eat intuitively when you're maintaining or maybe in the off season when you're trying to gain at a uh, a reasonable rate. But I would have thought that you would be paying very close attention to your macros at least as you're cutting and maybe have some sort of intuitive approach in the sense that you might be willing to modify your macro allotment or expectations based on how you're feeling week week to week, but you would still be tracking those things just to make sure you're hitting targets. Because I know that, uh, you don't you don't want to be all of a sudden like having to starve yourself for three days at the end of the the prep cycle to make sure you hit your weight. It really is down to a science a lot of the time, or at least that's how it how it sounds to me when I hear other bodybuilders talk about their prep. Yeah, I mean, if you have to starve yourself at the end of three days to 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 see the kind of consistency that you're looking for, and and point being is you're not going to see consistent weight loss on a week to week basis because it, it varies. So you got to look at the kind of longer time scales and trends which requires some, uh, like I'm still tracking my body weight on a day-to-day basis and looking at like 10 day averages and things like that. Um, and so like smoothing that so I can get a better idea and you pay more attention to your body weight loss early on and then more attention to the actual physical changes you see visually, which is the actual outcome you're looking for as you get leaner and leaner. But yeah, if, if you are in a situation where to be consistent and kind of, you know, hit that and you have to go starve yourself for three days, then you're probably not ready to do this. Um, but that's, that's absolutely not something that that I run into or, or someone should be running into if they're doing this, because that means their intuitive eating is actually more variable than if they were tracking. Um, so the only reason someone would want to do this is if it actually is an improvement on on tracking macros, which it absolutely is in, for me, um, because there is a there's a cost to tracking macros. Um, when you one, one kind of falsehood that quantitative researchers, and I'm one of them, isn't really acknowledging in the typical paradigms of uh, methodology we use is that by measuring things, we're influencing the outcomes. You know, 
like uh, it's hard to quantify what, what is the influence of taking the DALDA on your stress levels and sitting there and reflecting and, and quantifying your stress. And one thing I noticed as a coach is that you might have someone who was tracking their macro or, or was just eating, you know, before they got into competitive bodybuilding. And let's say, say they had a low energy expenditure. Let's say they're, you know, they're, they're a big person, but they only expend to, you know, 2000 calories on a day-to-day -day basis, which is low, but still within the realm of human variability. Once they start tracking and they're like, oh my God, I have to eat 1700 calories to start this diet. What's wrong with me? And that seems to actually influence how hungry they are when otherwise they might not even really think about it. They're on quote unquote poverty macros. It also takes time to track things and pay attention to them. And there's a, you know, the old saying, you know, what's, what's measured is managed. Um, but I think to add a little more nuance to that is you should measure things with the precision to which they matter. And it's very difficult to justify that, say, a 50 gram swing in carbohydrates with that being equated for calories in fats uh, really makes much of a difference uh, or, or could make any difference, even for different individuals. You know, so if you're so sometimes you'll see coaches provide, I want you to hit within they'll give like a I want you to eat 41 grams of fat, you know, like that, that'll be the guidance that they give to hit their, their target calories and they give you a breakdown. Um, but honestly, for the purposes of bodybuilding specifically, which is not a heavily energy system dependent physical activity, like calories and protein is probably sufficient. And if you have a relatively regular, or I should say, uh, consistently developed sports supportive, like nutrition plan, like it, it, there's the, where, where, what's the source of the variability. If I eat a similar breakfast, a similar lunch. A similar dinner. I have a post-workout shake, and then I have like Greek yogurt before I go to bed. It's if you do that on a day-to-day -day basis, you're going to differ by 50 to 100 calories. So then, any adjustments you might make, eating quote-unquote intuitively, might be like adding a piece of fruit or adding a carb or adding a fat. So the kind of variation that you would expect on a day-to-day -day basis in someone who has, you know, developed a consistent set of habits um, is very low when they start when they move away from tracking. And sometimes, not everybody, but like the, the quote unquote wrong way to do a fit fit your macros is to not actually develop a set of habits and an eating schedule and kind of a, a list of foods and more so just kind of freestyle it and just fit the macros however you want on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and that's what some people do in their kind of certain stages of if it fits your macros, depending on where they came from. If they came from a very rigid meal plan and they have to eat these foods at these specific times all of a sudden it's very freeing to just have numbers and that's a good thing. And I think it's a, it's an important evolution from just having a rigid meal plan and having beliefs about certain foods being good or certain foods being bad that therefore I have to, uh, you know, eat this exact specific meal plan. I have to have an apple, not a banana. And it has to be at 3 PM, not three thirty. And once you get away from that, that's, that's, that's an important step. But at the same time, I think sometimes people lose the, automated habits that, that come from just eating in a, in a consistent pattern. Um, and if it fits your macros, cause you're constantly weighing tracking. And then as you get hungry or seeing what foods you can fit, so you can have a little bit of a treat, it increases food focus for, for many competitors. Um, however, when you're just kind of following your habits and you just set it and forget it and you're not worried about it. And if you're starting to lose weight too quickly, or you look a little depleted or your performance is tanking, you eat a little more, or you take a diet break. 
um, you get to the same place, but you're not necessarily enhancing the focus on certain of the negative aspects. But again, I will emphasize, it's very important that someone needs to have consistency, have tracked for a while, be able to look at things. Like if, like I, I tested myself one time back in like 2016 or something like that. And it had been five years since I was weighing and tracking foods because I took a lot of time off from competitive bodybuilding from, from my PhD. I competed in 2011, started working on my MPhil and PhD, and I didn't compete again until 2019. Somewhere in the middle of that, someone had a, a sweet potato or a kumra, as we call them here in, in New Zealand. And uh, they were like, how many grams do you think that is? And I, I guessed, and I don't remember the exact value, but I was within five grams of the the weight of the sweet potato. So that's what happens. You know, I, I tracked my calories and, and weighed my foods for six years straight. So that skill is something that I can, that I retain pretty well and I can, I can have back. So I, eyeballing foods and, and especially if you're not trying to figure out the exact macros, I'm just going, all right, what's well, the calories and the protein in this meal? Yeah, I can reflect back and go, all right. So it's not like completely untracked. It'd be, it'd be unfair for me to say like, I, like I know what my calories are on a day-to-day -day basis if I care to pay attention to it and think about it. And if let's say I go three weeks and my weight's basically the same, I'm not looking any different and I'm not feeling quote unquote dieted, then I need to think, okay, so what have I, what I've been eating at? Um, so, okay, I'm, I'm tracking, I've got two days where I'm probably around 2,500 calories, five days where I'm at 1,900. So I need to cut here and there. What am I going to change to my, my eating schedule? All right, I'm going to have one piece of fruit at lunch and then I'm not going to have as large of a carbohydrate serving at dinner on my refeed days, something like that. And that's just a random example. But the point is, is that you're integrating the skills you got from tracking with a more flexible approach that also doesn't require you to track, which can enhance food focus. It can influence the way you feel. It can modify your hunger and satiety, which are heavily influenced by perceptual cues. Um, and it just reduces the time burden. So you can kind of just go about your day-to-day -day life and set it and forget it. Um, and the things you start focusing on enhance your, what's called interoceptive awareness. So interoceptive awareness is actually something you can measure in some studies. It's like, how well can you assess your heart rate? Um, you know, and, and that seems to correlate with other things of how well you can perceive your own bodily sensations. So once you start focusing on your bodily sensations, how hungry do I feel? How full do I feel? Um, you know, what is my energy levels? Uh, and when you start paying attention to your physique a little more, instead of just looking at quantitative things, you improve that skill as well. So I, I think it can be quite complimentary if you're paying attention to your, uh, some of those subjective things. Now, uh, on top of not only do you need the experience and the skill set to do this, and that's not something that I recommend people start at, um, you also need to be emotionally comfortable with the idea. Um, so it, it was, like I said, it was scary for me to do this all the way through my 2019 prep. Importantly in 2023 now, it's not scary. I'm, I, I know I'm capable of doing it. It, it, I think it is a superior approach for me at this time. Uh, it gives me more freedom and flexibility. And if at any point it is not working, I have all these other skills I can fall back on. Right. So I, I see it as a, uh, another tool to put in your toolbox, but one that you need to develop over time. And I think it's very difficult for some of the more neurotic quantitative bodybuilders who give themselves the, the, the comfort of feeling because I'm tracking something that it's more minutely and scientifically managed. Um, but in reality, it's like, well, you, you can't track your energy expenditure. You, 
there's not going to be an effect of the kind of variations larger than the one you're even allowing in your macro intake. And there is an effect of tracking. So this makes you feel more comfortable, which is valuable, but let's not pretend it's, it's optimal just because it's more quantified. So I think that that's, that's, that's an important uh, kind of first realization that a bodybuilder needs to have if they want to move towards this, but they don't have to. You can certainly stay with a, a tracking approach and it can be a little more like quantified, like you, like you said, like, all right, I give myself a 200 calorie range and I track calories and protein. And then based upon how I feel, I go up or down. So you can put quantitative restraints on it or constraints, I should say. Um, but I don't think you necessarily need to. Ultimately, the outcome is what we care about. If someone's losing at an appropriate rate, maintaining muscle mass, looking better, getting leaner, and they get shredded, they did it right. You know, so um, ultimately, that's that's kind of what we're trying to get to is, is an outcome, the rather than a uh, process which we want to convince ourselves is, is better or worse. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So though you've you've given a really great explanation, I think, of why it's been so successful for you, intuitive eating, and also of its downsides. I mean, I hadn't considered really the added stress that comes with tracking, for example, because I don't have that. I enjoy the tracking. And for me, it's it's like a useful sort of track to follow. I guess I prefer that uh, to the freedom. You've also pointed out that, especially in your case, it seems to require a lot of experience. And if it's an ideal, though, how do you recommend that people move toward it if they aren't even tracking to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think... Um, yeah, you know, tracking didn't bother me either when I did it. I did it for five years and I looked up one day and I was like, why am I doing this? I couldn't justify to myself why I was doing it. Um, I was like, I'm not going to be competing for years. I know what I need to eat on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm trying to get to an outcome, like a rate of weight gain and strength improvement. So like, why, why am I weighing my lunch? I just couldn't, I couldn't convince myself, you know, as a scientist. And the only thing I, I could rely on is, well, I do this because I do it and it makes me feel comfortable. And I just felt like an adult man with uh, like his banky and holding it so that I felt comfortable when I did the sleepover at my, my buddy's house, you know, in kindergarten. So I was like, I, okay, I'm not, I, I don't need my banky anymore. Like, let's, let's try this. Let's see if I can stay in the 93 kilo class. Like, am I just going to get overweight because I'm not tracking? And then I was able to like lose weight, gain weight within a certain range. And initially for me, when I did cut, or I didn't need to make specific manipulations to my body composition. I would just take tracking off the shelf. And I think that's a, that's a great intermediary step. Now to answer your question more directly, when I do teach this to people who are open to it or interested in it and who want to develop, you know, a better body awareness, um, typically if they're not even tracking yet, the goal is to introduce tracking in a facilitative way to learning rather than as a way to hit targets. So most people, their first uh, exposure to if it fits your macros or tracking calories is to hit specific targets. Like someone says, okay, I went to this website, if it fits your macros.com, I'm supposed to eat 200 grams of protein, 300 grams of carbs and 70 grams of fat. And then they, they, they go down the rabbit hole, they download my fitness pal, they're you know, they're, they're trying to figure out which foods fit these things. They're learning like, oh, do I track my, my chicken cooked or raw? Like, okay, wait, is that a cup of rice cooked or, okay, so I, I can zero the scale, like all the little skills that you learn 
and you're on MyFitnessPal and you're like, why is there eight different entries for pizza and there's a 600 calorie range? Which one do I choose? And you go on Reddit and you're like, hey, how do I like how much is in a pizza? You know, like all these things that are totally new. And then like, oh, I'm stalled and I'm only eating 1800 calories. And then someone's like, did you count the milk you put in your coffee? Oh, like, all right. Did you like, did you, did you count the butter or the oil? I'm like, oh shit, I'm actually eating 2,500 calories. Right. So that process is a six month to 24 month process of actually learning how to do this like well. Um, and as a coach, you know, you can fast track that for somebody, you know, you send a little PDF and introduction thing, you do some videos and they can learn that in a couple months. Honestly, you can, you can greatly fast track them if they have the right resources, the mentorship, all that stuff, but it is still a relatively challenging skill to develop. Um, so one of the ways to make that less of feeling like you're constantly failing is instead of starting your macro tracking journey with targets is you just eat as you have been and track it. And you're just learning how to quantify things and you can teach someone how to read a nutrition label. And as they get better and better and better, now they actually have not only a qualitative understanding of what their day-to-day -day nutrition habits are, but a quantitative understanding. And then the next step is you have them go, all right, now what I want you to do is I want you to, so now we can identify problems, quote unquote, with your current nutrition habits. Like your protein's a little too low, uh, your fat's a little too high, your carbohydrates are a little too low, and you also tend to under-eat on the five days of the week then over-eat on the weekend. I just described like 70% of people's like typical nutrition habits when you, when you finally, yeah, maybe, right? And when you actually look at them, right? So then you ask them, okay, so now that you've read all these nutrition labels, now you're heavily familiar with what of your, what, which of your foods are dominated by carbohydrates, fat, and or protein. You know, before they started this process, they were thinking nuts were high in protein and a little nut snack. They had like, oh, it's actually all fat. Um, now they're going, okay. So I understand that the, the quantitative composition of my, my nutrition. I also know what I like and the things that I, I like to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and for snacks. What type of easy swaps can I make to, to make those shifts. So what can I do to cut down on calories on the weekend? What can I do to increase my calories on weekdays? How do I increase my protein on weekdays? And what are some ways I can swap higher fat foods for higher carbohydrate and higher protein foods? And they start to go, oh, I can swap out these higher fat dairies with low fat dairies. Oh, I can simply replace some of my sodas with diet sodas. I can do this cheese instead of that cheese. I can add some 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 fruits to my diet for lunch here um, and have an extra serving of rice with dinner and I can choose a leaner cut of meat. And then on the weekends, I'm just gonna try to eat out once instead of three times for you know one lunch and two dinners or what have you. Um, and you actually have them do that. So you go, all right, I want you to write yourself three meal plans to fit within you know 10% of these targets for the weekend and the weekdays. And then once they do that, now they actually are going through the process of trying to make swaps and trying to make, trying to make foods fit numbers. And when they finally completed those meals, then they get to trial it. So this is kind of like, you know, phase two of this process. Initially, it's just, just track, learn tracking, see where you're at. And then it's solve problems and actually get in there and, and try to make these changes and then see how it feels. How do you like it? Which of, did these swaps work? And if they didn't, what are ways to, to modify it? And then from there, then we can, we, can, we can keep making adjustments and then we can figure out, all right, which of these tracking behaviors can we let go of while still getting to our, our outcome that we're trying to get to? Because ultimately the goal is not to track, the goal is to get to an outcome. 
And tracking should be an educational process and a facilitative process to do that. So once they have consistently been tracking to hit these, you know, problem solving modifications to their diet, then we go, okay, all right, let, let's take tracking out and let's see if you can just eat that way and we'll look at your body weight. So if our goal is to gain body weight, you got a young person new to the gym who habitually under eats and they're kind of traditionally skinny and they're trying to put on muscle mass. All right, let's take a look at your three week body weight average. If that's trending upward at an appropriate rate, and if your strength is trending upward at an appropriate rate, you're doing it right with your nutrition. But if you start to hit a, hit a stall, all right, let's, let's bring tracking out of the closet or off the shelf. Uh, and we'll see where you're at. Oh, I've fallen back into this habit of under eating here and there, or my energy expenditure just ramped up as I've gained weight and we need to make another adjustment. I need to add something else. Oh, I'm really, really full. Okay, well, let's talk about things that are induced more satiety and which you don't, and you're mentoring the person or you're kind of working your own way through this process if you don't have a coach. Okay, so I need to increase some of the foods that are a little more palatable. Maybe I need to add in snacking. Maybe I need to increase my meal frequency so that I can eat you know, smaller meals at, at larger frequencies, which might enable me to get in more total calories. So you start using all these different strategies to you know increase calories. And then on the flip side, if someone is trying to lose weight and they stall, maybe their energy expenditure has gone down. Maybe they're, they're eating a little more than they realize. They track, they identify that problem, and then they learn to make that adjustment again. So now they've actually had the experience of, I know what my baseline habits are. I understand the actual procedures for tracking. I've seen how the modifications did or don't work, and I've fine-tuned those more. And then over the course of the process of either gaining weight, losing weight, or maintaining weight, I've identified additional problems and I've learned how to solve those. And then I can step back again. So it becomes basically a audit rather than a, a way of living. Um, and sometimes for some people, tracking can be a, a moderator for behaviors that aren't like great. Like if you don't go out to eat anymore and when you do, you want to bring your food scale you're, you're not in full charge of your life, right? Like you tracking has become something that you don't know how to operate without rather than it being something that is a tool in your tool belt, you know? So it should be a tool rather than a crutch. And I think if someone does a kind of an honest assessment, they can identify where that is. But if someone decides, Hey, I really like this tool. I'm going to use it a lot. It works for me. Um, then that's totally fine as well. You know, so there's nothing wrong with tracking. I don't want to give that impression either. And empirically, we haven't seen that to be the case either. There has been some concerns um, as if you, whether or not tracking and uh, basically weight monitoring and physique monitoring behaviors are always associated with eating disorders and body image dissatisfaction um, because they do co-vary. So generally, uh, something like three quarters of people with eating disorders do track their calories, right? But what's the chicken or the egg? And when we look at studies on disordered eating and tracking, when you use for entrance criteria for the participants uh, that they don't currently have an eating disorder and they don't score highly on uh, eating behaviors that are associated with eating disorders, we don't see a causational relationship with tracking leading to more disordered eating or, or the development of eating disorders. But it is very possible based upon some of the correlational research we have that it can be a moderating factor in people who already have a predisposition or a high degree of disordered eating or actual diagnosed eating disorder that can maintain or exacerbate the negative experiences associated with it. So there's still interest there. It's not necessarily a, a totally closed book, but um, it is 
worth understanding the facilitative and debilitative ways of tracking. Um, and one other kind of paradigm of, of looking at nutrition is uh, the type of restraint you're putting out there. So there's been a line of research that goes back 30 years now, since the early 90s, uh, where the three-factor eating questionnaire, which has uh, emotional eating, it had disinhibition, it has dietary restraint. Uh, there was a group led by Westenhofer where they looked at dietary restraint and they said, you know what? Restraint has positive and negative aspects. And we could actually dichotomize the restraint category on this eating questionnaire into a score for rigid restraint and flexible restraint. And they did that. And they started looking at correlations between those who exhibited more rigid restraint and more flexible restraint. And they found very different outcomes. The people who use more flexible restraint tend to have a lower BMI. They tend to maintain more weight loss. Uh, and actually experimentally, when people move more towards flexible restraint, away from rigid restraint, they're more likely to maintain weight loss over, over multiple years. Uh, and they were less likely to have uh, body image dissatisfaction or disordered eating symptoms. So pretty large body of research. Um, there are some critiques of this area of research. There's some shared variants statistically between flexible and rigid restraint. But I think conceptually, it still holds pretty true. Uh, and it makes sense in practice when you think about what are these constructs. And our best understanding is that flexible restraint is the concept that no single diet or day or instance uh, is going to dictate the value or the success of the entire process, right? Uh, while on the other hand, rigid restraint has more to do with a black and white view of things. Either I'm on or off the diet. It's kind of like the person who slips up a little bit and says, F it. I might as well have pizza tonight, you know, and we smile at that because we all have a little bit of that. We recognize it. Oh yeah. We've and done we've, that. You know, like, and we think about it, it makes no <laughs> sense. Like, oh, I got a flat tire. I might as well just take out my pocket knife and, and, and knife all three yeah. tires because screw it. You know, the classic thing is you've got the diet planned starting tomorrow. So you eat all of the ice cream in the freezer. Exactly. Which is, which is like, it should be a red flag for us, right? Like I, I feel restrained and I feel dieted before I've even started the diet because I'm already rebelling and I haven't even started. Like maybe now's not the time to go on a diet, right? So, um, so anyway, the, the, th that those rigid restraint behaviors are all around it being black and white. There's good foods, there's bad foods, there's off the plan, there's on the plan. While the flexible approach is, you know, I'm going to make the best of the current constraints of this situation. So for example, I'm, I've got a diet plan. That's great. I'm going to follow it. Oh, my old college buddy is in town and I haven't seen them in 10 years. I'm going to go out to dinner with them. And today, I'm going to allow myself to eat a little more. And then the next few days, I'll, I'll make up for that. Nothing extreme, but I'm, I'm just going to kind of pick my spots and I'm not going to see that as a failure. I'm going to see those as constraints around my ability to follow my diet and I'm going to modify within that. So it has elements of auto-regulation. It has elements of being able to look at the bigger picture and the long-term outcome rather than the short-term reality. And it is less of an extreme view of being on or off the diet. And unfortunately, a lot of the personalities that get wrapped up in bodybuilding is it's kind of the all or nothing mentality. It's an extreme sport. So they trend towards these more rigid practices. Um, but unfortunately, those things are, are, are predictive of a lack of long-term success and also, you know, psychological distress. So tracking, people will typically position like following a rigid meal plan and if it fits your macros as rigid restraint and flexible restraint. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen tracking macros 
exemplify all the qualities of rigid restraint. You know, I hit my macros within one gram or five grams. I hit them every day. It doesn't matter what my energy expenditure was. Oh, and if I go over, I, the day's done. I blew my diet. It becomes just a less food restrictive. Like I, you can fit anything you want into those macros, but the macros are on this pedestal and the deviation from the macros is the disaster. And I can't go out to eat. I can't do that. I can't have alcohol. I don't know how to count that. That's not a carb, fat, or protein. You, you fermented my carbohydrates. I have no idea how to count it. You know, like so. Um, and you know, one and gram it's going to take me out of ketosis. So who knows? Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it still can co-vary with other you know beliefs that that are potentially restrictive exactly. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that answer was, I think worth its weight in gold, even though words don't really weigh very much. Uh, but I've, I've gotten these questions hundreds of times from people that I know from my friends, because I'm, I'm the quote unquote, uh, fit friend, this sort of thing. But I've, I've never had a really good answer for how to start tracking because for me, one, it's so easy. And I also, I mean, my, maintenance calories are 4050 so i can i can eat a lot it's of a good life. a lot of yeah I, I can eat a lot of junk food and uh, it just makes it a lot easier for me than for other people but so we we've gotten now into some of the content uh well into some of the content in the muscle and strength pyramid nutrition though there's another another book for training maybe that's the a subject for another conversation but before we move on from this, I think it would be nice to, now that we've given a, a good overview of how one might start tracking, to just talk about a few major topics in a bit more detail, even though I don't think it'll take that long maybe to answer each one. But you spoke about how somebody should begin to start tracking and then the rough schema for how they might start also tracking their weight and how this might then work together so that they can say, oh, I need to raise my calories, lower my calories, change my macros a little bit. But my sister, for instance, she is going to Sedan this summer. And apparently food is very insecure there, especially for a vegetarian. She's a vegetarian. So she's been told that she needs to pretty much pack all of her food. And because of that, she needs to know what her maintenance calories are and how just the specifics, what are the specific steps that somebody follows once they uh, start tracking their food and they start weighing themselves to find their maintenance calories? Well, in her case, I would specifically say that the maintenance she tracks here are probably going to be different than the ones in Sudan because I, I suspect she'll be a little more active. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, that, that's example, an important caveat. Yeah, which which is this, this is a minor thing to tell your sister. But like, for example, my steps doubled while I was in Mexico recently. So your maintenance calories, they're not going to double, but they were probably 30% higher. You know, one of the most variable components of our total daily energy expenditure is our non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So I would advise her, absolutely, you can determine what your maintenance calories are and we can talk through how to do that, but then probably pack another 25, 30% of the food you would need so that when you have a day where you're clocking 10,000 steps plus, you can, you can top up, you know? Um, so yeah, the, the, the kind of maths behind this is pretty straightforward. Um, 
if you want to be super quantitative and scientific about it, you get a daily morning weigh-in. So first thing, you wake up nude, you use the toilet. Uh, don't Before you drink or eat anything, you step on the scale, step on it again to make sure that's actually the accurate number because there'll be some variation in digital scales, um, and then track it. Um, once you've done this for two to three weeks, then you can get an average. Then you can look at the next two to three week period and you can see the average again and you can see its change. So if you are in a slight surplus, a slight deficit or maintenance, it'll be roughly the same. And that means you can kind of take what your current nutrition is, which we talked about for tracking, and you can you know, basically coordinate the two. So if you're eating on average 2,300 calories and you're sitting at 160 pounds pretty consistently for two, two, three, two, two to three week periods on average, then you know that that's roughly your maintenance calories. Um, however, if you're slowly gaining weight or slowly losing weight, then you know you're in a slight surplus or slight deficit. And we have a rough calculation based upon the, uh, the energy of fat mass, um, which is typically what you're going to be losing in the short term when you're looking at averages, because actually what you lose in the short term most of the time is like gut bulk and water weight. But if you're looking at comparing two, three week periods, you're probably gaining slight amounts of body fat or losing slight amounts of body fat. And any change in, in other tissues is going to be pretty negligible. So there's what's called the quote unquote 3,500 calorie rule, which is more like the 3,500 calorie guideline that roughly approximates what's actually going on, but it's not perfect. Um, and uh, so if you are losing, uh, if you, if you're in a deficit of 3,500 calories, you will lose approximately one pound of body fat mass, assuming you don't lose other tissue. If you're able to account for water weight losses, which is why we have to use that average period. So you can look at your change as kind of like relative to that. So if you dropped half a pound over this, you know, three week average compared to three week average, you're in a very, very slight deficit, right? Cause that's first your three week average. And then it's only half a pound. So it's half of 3,500 calories divided by two to three weeks. And you go, okay, I need to eat like another 100 calories or something like that, um, and vice versa. So if you're in a slight surplus, you can probably use that same value. So you can calculate mathematically what you're in your current environment, what your average surplus or deficit is. Now, this doesn't mean that it's going to be that on a day-to-day -day basis, but your average. So um, that's, that's kind of how you do it mathematically, uh, just to connect it to what we talked about earlier. If someone wants to get towards or away from tracking, you can also track your average hunger levels and satiety levels just on like a scale of one to five, you know, or one to 10 or something like that. And if you can associate your levels of hunger with weight maintenance, weight surplus, or weight loss in your current diet with your current activity levels, that can also be quite useful. Most people, once they've adopted a lot of, uh, let's say, bodybuilding supportive nutrition habits, and of course, they train regularly, um, they're going to find that when they're roughly feeling kind of in a mid-range level of hunger or satiety post-meal, uh, that that's going to correlate with weight maintenance. So for example, on a 1 to 10 scale, when they're hanging out around like a 4 to 6, they're, they're maintaining weight, you know? And when they're a little hungrier, like on a five to seven or even seven to nine, like they're, they're probably losing weight and vice versa when they drop a little lower. And it's not that simple. It also has to do with what their uh, normal body fat settling kind of range is and et cetera. But um, that's how you do it mathematically. And if you combine that with a subjective score or an awareness of your satiety levels and your hunger levels, then you can also associate, well, how hungry am I when I'm maintaining weight, gaining weight or losing weight? 
in this current environmental condition, you know, the, the, the foods I'm choosing, the activity level, levels I have, and that can help you start to build those skills so you can be uh, less quantitative if you'd like. So that was terrific. The next thing that I think is really important to touch on is protein requirements. As you mentioned earlier, you think it's probably sufficient for most people to just pay attention to calories and protein. And for the most part, that's what I do. But though that's largely because one, I eat at least a pint of ice cream every day. So I get more than enough fat. And I also get, <laughs> yeah, I get more than enough carbs too. So I'm mainly just worried about protein, but there's a huge variance in recommendation. So the RDA you get from the FDA is far, far lower than most uh, body, most bodybuilders would really cringe to see the number. If they were forced to eat that uh, amount of protein, they would rebel. Uh, but then on the other hand, I was listening to an Iron Culture episode. It was probably many, many months ago, but your guest was suggesting that 1.2 grams per protein, uh, 1.2 grams of protein per pound might really optimize uh, muscle synthesis. So naturally, at, at this point, we're talking more for a strength athlete because a a typical person like my sister who has no body composition goals whatsoever, <clears throat> they don't need 1.2 grams per pound. But then I've heard other people say 0.67 grams per pound. Uh, I think Lane Norton usually says one gram per pound. I, <clears throat> because I eat so many calories a day, it's not difficult for me to hit 1.2 grams per pound. So that's fine for me. But I had earlier only eaten 1.2 grams uh, of protein per pound when cutting, when you really want to spare any, you want as much protein as you can have to prevent unnecessary anabolic activity. I mean, catabolic activity, sorry. Um, so how do you go about recommending uh, protein for your clients? Yeah, uh, I think this is one of those uh, those areas where you're going to see very, very different values across different groups because the the question that's asked, the goal of the individual and the methods used to assess it all vary. So your RDA recommendation is typically based upon uh, nitrogen balance studies and looking at what's the minimal amount of protein because it's a very costly and hard to get nutrient in uh, countries that have you know food scarcity and lower socioeconomic status um, to prevent malnutrition right so nitrogen balance is simply a method where you're measuring the nitrogen output uh, which can be measured through collected urine samples and estimated losses through sweat and fecal matter and then you're measuring the nitrogen input and for those who don't know, uh, the only macronutrient that contains nitrogen is protein. So it's basically just looking at the foods that are consumed and determining the nitrogen content from the protein uh, proportion of the foods that are consumed. And then you can determine whether someone's in a positive or negative nitrogen balance. So 0.8 grams per kilogram is essentially what uh, the general population, on average, most of them need to not be in a negative nitrogen balance chronically and therefore not have malnutrition. It's not necessarily what is 
available or what is what is needed to optimize health. Sorry, did you say 0.8 grams per kilogram? Yep. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I, I caught that. Yeah. So very low. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very that's low. Like, I would guess that's like 0.3 something. It's per like pound. 0.35 grams per pound or something like that. Exactly. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's like 60 to 80 grams of protein for most people, you know, no problem. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're a typical omnivore and living in a Westernized nation, you're going to accidentally consume more than that without thinking about it, you know? So it's, 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 it's a, it's a non-issue in most societies, but it is a, it's important to know that that's how that was determined and why and for whom. Uh, that is a very different question than what is the amount of protein I need to maximize the rate of muscle gain or strength gain over time. And you don't measure nitrogen balance for that. Oddly enough, you measure increases of muscle mass or strength, right? So, and then you compare different groups on different protein intakes. And when you ask those two different questions in research, you get two very different answers. So I would say the, the RDA is, is great for what it is, you know, uh, the minimum amount of protein needed to prevent malnutrition in most people, but not all. Um, however, when we start to look at large or, or, or the, the best, we don't really have large scale studies on protein for performance, but we do have meta-analyses, which I know we're going to talk about later, which is kind of the ad hoc solution to uh, any area of study where we have underpowered uh, research, which absolutely describes sports nutrition and sports science. You know, most studies were comparing groups of eight to 15 people versus another eight to 15 people. And that's almost certainly underpowered in most cases to generalize the population. And to throw another wrench in there, we're often not doing true random sampling. So nonetheless, if we actually want to get an idea of a uh, representative protein intake for the large population, we got to take all those studies together. If they meet similar inclusion criteria for the way they were conducted, put them into a meta-analysis. Now we got 20 studies, so we can be taking a look at 400 people, uh, which is more comparable to like one RCT in medical research um, to actually get a, so, some, some estimates here of what's appropriate. So that's been done a number of times. And um, oftentimes what you're seeing is that you start to get benefits all the way up to roughly double the RDA for increases in strength or protein. So right around 1.5 or 1.6 grams per kilogram which roughly converts to about 0.7 grams per pound. Um, and there's a considerable amount of uncertainty around that value, um, depending upon the statistical paradigm. Like if you look at like the 95% the confidence interval, which is just a statistical representation of, okay, this is the mean we found in this meta-analysis. It was, let's say it's 1.6 grams per kg. But with the level of variability we see in these findings, we have a 95% confidence that the, the mean of the actual population that we're sampling from falls somewhere between here and here. And that's a huge range. In fact, in a meta-analysis I was part of by Morton and colleagues, it was from one gram per kg all the way up to 2.2. So yeah, it's, it's a, but most likely it's probably closer to 1.6, right? But with 95% confidence, with, with a pretty high degree of statistical confidence, it could be anywhere in there. If we decrease the confidence, like we're 90% confident, then it becomes like, you know, 1.4 to 2.0 or something like that. So nonetheless, um, it's somewhere in that range. And what we decided to recommend in the discussion uh, based upon two things. One is the fact that a high protein diet seems to be safe, especially within the range we're talking about, like, you know, 1.6 gram per kg or slightly higher. And that there is a cost 
therefore to being below what might be optimal, but there's no cost to being above except maybe preference or cost or farting too much, you know, uh, important things, right? So we recommended for people interested in optimizing muscle growth, the upper half of that confidence range or that confidence interval. So we recommended 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kg as basically a better safe than sorry range. Um, also, ranges are good because it provides for individual differences, right? Uh, and individual preferences, which is very important. So that range was derived from Morton and colleagues, which I was one of the co-authors on. But there's been multiple meta-analyses since looking at both strength and hypertrophy uh, that have found a similar quote-unquote breakpoint. And that's the second thing we did in the Morton meta-analysis. So we did what's called a breakpoint analysis, which is just simply looking at, if we look at the, the plot of gains in strength or gains in lean body mass and the various studies that provided different gram per kilogram recommendations of protein, at what point do we stop seeing a linear-ish relationship and does it start to flatten out? And that was 1.63 grams per kg in the Morton meta-analysis. And in other meta-analyses, it's recently been uh, seen around 1.5. Uh, there was one meta-analysis that did a categorical assessment and the group that was, I believe, 1.59, like 1.3 to 1.59 had slightly poorer gains than 1.6 and up. So it's been found multiple times through multiple meta-analyses for both strength and hypertrophy that probably right around 1.5, 1.6 grams per kg is kind of that point of diminishing returns. Um, and like I said, no downside to being higher. And there are potential circumstances to where you could benefit from being higher. So the range I often recommend is 0.7 to 1 gram per pound for an American audience or 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kg for a, a metric audience. Um, where we don't have a lot of research uh, or sufficient research to be really confident is what happens when you're in a caloric deficit? What happens when you're, when you're losing weight? And this is actually what I, what I did my master's on. And unfortunately, we're still lacking a robust data set where we compare like moderate intakes, like in that 1.4 to 1.8 grams per kg intake, which is high for the research, but moderate for what most people in the lifting community consider to something a lot higher, like over two grams per kg. And the little hints we have suggest that it's possible, it hasn't been ruled out. Uh, that a higher protein intake could could be beneficial while dieting. Maybe just for satiety, maybe just for how it makes you feel, but possibly for performance and uh, and, uh, and and weight loss, or sorry, lean body mass maintenance while dieting. Um, but it's it's not super clear, um, and it it's it's kind of a again a better safe than sorry recommendation. But when dieting, because you're dealing with a caloric budget, you don't want to go too high. Because it necessarily takes away from, you know, carbohydrates and fats, which, you know, serve an important function. So when you're dieting and you're tracking calories, you are always robbing Peter to pay Paul to some degree. And that, that calculus gets more challenging the leaner you get and the more likely you are to lose lean, uh, lean mass. Because the leaner you get, you have less fat tissue to actually, you know, pull from. The more long you've been in an energy deficit, the more likely you're going to get pushed back from your body, being in a poor hormonal environment to maintain muscle mass. Et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I wrote a systematic review in 2013 with some of my co-authors where we recommended basically if you use the gram per kg, uh, like 1.8 to 2.7 grams per kg, which seemed to be associated with slightly better muscle retention, but it wasn't as a very strong quantitative, uh, like there's no meta-analysis on protein intake while dieting yet because there's insufficient data. So right now it's speculative and it's a better safe than sorry potential benefit. 
Um, I think that iron culture episode you're referring to, I think that might've been Chris Barricat and he was talking about body recomposition, if I recall correctly. And he was looking at studies where they had found, um, body recomposition, noting very high protein intakes, but none of those are RCTs. We don't have data suggesting that body recomposition happens better with a very high protein intake. We just have studies on body recomposition and they happen to be eating a very high protein intake. Um, and there could be a benefit there. Um, it is a little more challenging to convert uh, protein biochemically into energy. Um, you've got to you know, cleave off more of it. It's got to get converted in the, litter, the, the liver. And that's why you see a higher dietary thermogenesis value, or what's called DIT or the thermic effect of food, TEF, of protein. So uh, it burns, it costs more calories to convert protein into energy. Uh, than it does carbohydrates or fat. So there's been people who have postulated that a very high protein diet is a useful way of ensuring you're having sufficient protein to build muscle or maintain muscle while also, you know, burning a few more calories. But the amount we're talking about is pretty negligible in the grand scheme. Um, and other people have suggested that very high protein diets are more satiating, but on average, we typically see the satiating effect of high protein diets start to drop off around where the diminishing returns of muscle gain drop off or maybe slightly higher. So generally my recommendation is like 0.7 to 1.2 grams per pound and using kind of the lower half for um, periods where you're not in a deficit and the higher half when periods where you are in a deficit. But I think it's really important to note, and I recently made an Instagram post about this, that just because we provide a range with a lower limit doesn't mean that lower than that is disastrous. Like if you're at 1.4 grams per kg, all the data would suggest that's sufficient to build decent amounts of muscle. And it would probably be such a small difference to 1.6 or 1.7 or 1.8 grams per kg that you would never notice the difference. So when you start to provide cutoffs for people, they tend to dichotomize the outcomes. But in reality, and it's quite logical if you think about it, if protein overall has a small effect on muscle gain, which it does, if you actually look at the overall like effect size uh, of, of what is a high protein diet, have to do with increasing your rate of muscle gain. It has a small effect when we qualitatively assess it, like you know, 0.3 uh, on, a, on like a Cohen's or a, or a Hedges G uh, scale, which may not mean anything to the statistically minded, but it, it means a very small improvement, but it's still notable in the rate of muscle gain. And if you go from you know a 0.1 or a 0.2 gram per kg difference in protein, which is like 10 to 15 grams, it doesn't all of a sudden drop to now you're losing muscle it changes to you're gaining slightly less. It operates on a similar, similar continuum. So a very slight change in muscle and uh, protein intake, it's gonna have a very slight change in your potential enhanced you know, muscle gain, even if you fall below the cutoffs that are recommended. And it's important to remember that when you have a, a, a bodybuilding sports scientist recommending protein for bodybuilders, that they are looking to optimize things um, to the point where even they, they would not be able to notice the difference, but we have the data to suggest that probably would be better, even if you can't tell. And it's the kind of mentality sports scientists have where someone running a 9.900 meter sprint places significantly lower than 9.7. So it's a, you know, 0.2, you know, second difference in time, but makes a massive difference of being on the podium or off, you know, just as kind of a, a random example. And that equivalent exists in, in every sport at the highest level where small differences have larger qualitative outcomes. So bodybuilders who are trying to get on stage absolutely shredded with every little ounce of muscle they can, 
it might make sense to be more picky about your protein intake. But for the average person, if they struggle to get in 1.6 grams per kg and they're regularly getting in 1.4 and I look at their nutrition, I don't flag that as a problem because it's still plenty sufficient to put on muscle and they're not trying to be Mr. Ohio, right? They're trying to have a, a diet that supports their goals and it absolutely does, you know? And especially if they that they don't have a lot of extra cash lying around to buy more expensive foods that are protein, especially if maybe they are, are vegan for whatever reason, if that's that, that's the way, the way they want to live their lifestyle or that's their aligns with their values and it's very challenging for them to get in a higher protein diet, they can have a lot of confidence that being close to the optimal cutoff is still good, you know? So anyway, that that's an important caveat that I think gets lost a lot of the times once you start providing these quantitative guidelines. Well, your your caveat has been registered, but I do hope that all of my listeners, present and future, aspire to get yickety yacked. Yes, sir. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And and, no. and the most yickety yacked, more yickety yacked than you can potentially tell the difference between getting less yickety yacked, but still strive for greatness. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 100% yickety yacked all, all the way around. Now, so we could we could keep talking about calories and protein and the other macros i'm sure you've got plenty of episodes iron culture i've listened to them all but i don't have them all cataloged in my <laughs> in my mind that i would highly recommend anybody listening to turn to if they want to hear more about that uh, and it's also covered in in the muscle and strength pyramid nutrition but before we move on to the meta-analyses, which I mentioned wanting to get to, uh, which I, I classified that as our vegetables. We're having dessert before vegetables. I want to talk about a bit about supplements and some of the content in uh, mass. And Eric Trexler and I talked a bit about mass, but maybe you could remind me, or not me so much, but my audience, about what mass is. And you said there's a sale going on or, or going to start soon. I think when this drops, it'll be over. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, okay, but yeah, we, we typically do. But this will this will be useful. We have two sales per year in mass. One is around Black Friday, so do pay attention to that. And then one is around the anniversary of when mass was started, which was late April. So uh, if this drops in June, you'll be between them. And if you want to save money, absolutely, I encourage you to wait to wait till Black Friday. But uh, what mass is? It's monthly applications in strength sport, and that is myself. Um, PhD candidate, Lauren Colenso-Semple, Dr. Eric Trexler, you mentioned, and also my colleague, Dr. Mike Zerdos. Uh, and we do a monthly research review of the most impactful by our estimation research that's come out in the last month um, as a review for people who are don't want to read the full research or have struggled to interpret it or need assistance in helping apply it to the big picture. So we do uh, long form article reviews where we'll take a, you know, a popular study or a relevant study or an impactful study that came out anywhere in the realm of bodybuilding, sports science, or, you know, body recomposition, strength gain, the whole nine yards and uh, review it in depth, hopefully teaching people how to understand research and also seeing where it fits with the greater body of knowledge. So they don't just kind of rely on the findings of this one study. Uh, or we do video concept reviews like myself and Dr. Zerdos do all of those where we do a video on a topic broadly. Um, or we do research briefs where we kind of take a shorter form, uh, review of, of, of a few different studies. Um, and we also have like audio summaries and we have continuing education for, for personal trainers, for most of the big personal training organizations, NSCA, NASM, ACSM, ACE. 
Uh, and that's what we do when we've been doing it. Now we're coming up, we, we're having right now our six year anniversary. So we've been doing it since 2017, which is pretty cool. Um, and it's been really well received and, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to be in a position where we can keep people educated and up to date. And it's pretty cool to see that we have like competitive bodybuilders who sign up coaches and also a lot of academics, um, which, you know, scary sometimes writing a, a, re a review, knowing that the, maybe the author who wrote the paper is going to be reading what you wrote, but it, it's also a huge privilege. Um, so that's what mass is. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so that's mass and we cover a whole bunch of different topics. Um, because I'm one of the reviewers, that means we cover a lot of bodybuilding stuff. We cover a fair amount of protein stuff, fair amount of auto, re auto regulation. So, yeah, you're, Absolutely right. I mean, you don't need me to tell you the content of mass, but there are articles on everything from drop sets. So that's bodybuilding to um, meta analyses, which we'll get into. So more theoretical things than articles on nutrition. And that that's actually what I wanted to talk about right now. So we have already spoken about calories and protein, which are the two most important factors in tracking but we haven't spoken much about supplements and granted any supplement is going to be much less important than your carbohydrates or your fat but people like talking about <laughs> supplements a lot they're very fun uh and there were three in particular that i wanted to talk about the first i think you wrote this article from mass in the past few months about creatine loading and maintenance and so creatine is the best studied and not just the best studied, but I also think it produces the best outcomes uh, supplement that there is. So, but my, my audience might not know what it is. So what is creatine and how do you dose it? So this gets into the article loading and maintenance. That's a great question. So yeah, creatine uh, is, is a supplement you can purchase. It's very, very cheap. It's just a, a white powder. It's typically sold as creatine monohydrate, although there all a, are a bunch of different uh, types of creatine that are out there, um, which I'll discuss why those probably aren't worth getting. Um, but yeah, creatine is, it's, it's basically a compound that is found in meats um, and it is a combination of three different amino acids and it is stored in muscle and it is used as an energy substrate for contraction. So if you go back to your physiology classes, you might remember there's different energy systems. There's the ATP CP system, which powers the first 10 seconds of all out effort. Uh, there's, you know, aerobic and anaerobic phosphate, creatine phosphate. Yes. Right. Okay. So we cleave off the phosphate. Um, we use that for energy. Uh, the byproduct is creatinine. And we recycle creatine constantly, and we actually store that in muscle. So you have, so so you you would supplement with creatine specifically for the purpose of fueling high intensity contractions, and knowing that it is actually stored in muscle. We have intramuscular creatine stores, right? These tend to be slightly higher in meat eaters because, like I said, this is present in uh, animal products primarily, and not so much in, in dairy or or uh, or eggs. So you even see it being higher in uh, omnivores than lacto vegetarians. Tangentially, some research has shown that vegetarians benefit more from supplementing with creatine than meat eaters, which makes sense when you think about it. And it is very challenging to get to maximal muscle creatine stores without supplementing. 
One of the reasons is that when you cook meats, it degrades the creatine content. It turns it into creatinine, which is the byproduct. Um, so unless you're eating a lot of, you know, steak tartare, uh, a whole lot of like, you know, rare steaks or you're on, yeah, I'm sure liver King has no problem getting his creatine high. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, if, if you're consuming a lot of sashimi, maybe. Um, but for the most part, while there are slightly higher values for meat eaters versus omnivores, they're not maxed out. And when you look at the, the some of the fundamental research on creatine, you can see that you can get a, a pretty solid bump in your muscle creatine stores um, from taking creatine. Um, and this is typically done by loading. Or if you look at, you know, a creatine monohydrate tub from your supplement supplier, they'll tell you to take you know, five doses of five grams per day for the better part of a week, you know, so 20 to 25 grams per day for five to seven days. And at that point, you'll have saturated muscle creatine stores, and then you're on your way to Gainesville. Um, and typically what will occur from that loading period is you'll be up in body weight by about one to 2%. And that is primarily from the increased muscle creatine and the associated water that is bound to creatine, much like glycogen has bound water to it. And that's good. That's good weight. You look more muscular. It's it's in, it's intracellular, uh, you know, weight, and it is creating supplementation uh, in multiple meta analyses and many, 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 many RCTs that have been done over the last thirty years now, been shown to enhance strength, power, uh, repeated sprint performance, uh, and also lean body mass gains. So it is, like you said, and accurately characterized, probably the most well studied supplement for resistance training performance. There is probably more research on caffeine, but that is a lot of that has been done in other realms. And importantly, there's very few longitudinal trials looking at the effect of chronic caffeine supplementation on strength or hypertrophy, but there are a lot of them on creatine. Most of the caffeine trials are on, hey, if I take caffeine right now and go work out, what happens to that workout? And while we have that in creatine as well, most of the, or a large body of research is what happens if I take creatine for eight weeks, 12 weeks, 24 weeks, even some trials that are coming up on multiple years as there's more and more interest in creatine because it has health effects. Um, creatine is not just stored in muscle. It's also stored in other tissues, importantly, the brain. And uh, there's neurological benefits to taking creatine for certain neurological disorders, as well as for uh, reducing the severity of concussions or TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, uh, and increasing the rate of recovery from them. So it has a neuroprotective effect, uh, which is which has been studied. And now there's a lot more money behind creatine. So it's being seen very differently today than it was, say, in the 90s, um, when Mark McGuire had to go in front of, you know, or, or, or baseball was getting under the lens for the doping violations and some of the high-level, high-profile uh, baseball players like Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire famously said, hey, you know, I, I'm not taking steroids. I'm just taking andro and creatine. And all of a sudden, creatine got seen as some type of steroid, right? So questions on whether I should cycle it. Is it dangerous? Is it going to make me have these secondary sexual characteristics of taking androgenic anabolic steroids? No. If you're eating, you know, chicken, you're, 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 you're taking creatine to some degree. So anyway, bit of a tangent, but... We're now in 2023 understanding that creatine has beneficial effects as a, as a clinical, uh, you know, supplement and can be used outside of just the lifting community. But yeah, creatine is, is the most well-studied uh, supplement. 
And uh, despite all this research and despite all these this this massive body of data, it is a small effect on strength and, and hypertrophy. So it is still a supplement, um, which means it is supplemental. Like if you submitted a supplemental tax form to the IRS and not your main, uh, you know, tax form, they they would probably come after you. So that's the same way you should view supplements in a dietary sense. So yep. One thing I, I need to point out because there is a lot of meat talk in there is that I, I eat meat, but creatine is vegan. So yeah, that's actually eating, a really good point. Yes, creatine yeah. is lab created. It, you, you're, if if you are a vegan and you buy creatine, you're not consuming an animal product, which is a really good mm -hmm. point. And then the last thing that I wanted to clarify about creatine is I take five grams per day. I don't know. Maybe I missed it. But what dose do you take and how do you take it? Uh, do you? Yeah. Yeah. Generally, uh, like I take personally five grams on workout days. Um, but if you if you wanted to get it down to like what's an appropriate dose, somewhere between like 0 0.03 to 0 0.04 uh, grams per kilogram, which for most people comes out to being like two to six grams per day. Um, and it is a chronic supplement. So it's not something that has an acute effect when you take it. The goal is to take it until you actually get to, uh, you know, maximal saturated muscle creatine stores. And going back to how I mentioned, most of the time you'll see supplement companies and even some of the sports science papers recommend this loading phase that will get you topped out as fast as possible. Okay, great. It takes five days. But there's also data showing just taking five grams a day can get you topped out or at a similar level to than shown in prior research from loading within two weeks. So you're saving 10 days at best um, if you just take five grams a day. And importantly, the there are very few side effects to creatine. The ones that are most frequently reported are gastrointestinal distress. And notably, they are higher when you take larger doses. So the likelihood of experiencing gastrointestinal distress is multiple factors higher in terms of probability when you're loading versus not. And just as an example, when you think about the necessity of loading or the benefit of getting muscle creatine stores saturated a few days earlier, I haven't stopped taking creatine since 2004. You know, this is, like I said, it's it's in meat, it's in chicken. It's, it's, it's not something that needs, there's no long-term issues. It, it is a, it's a food, essentially. It's, it's, it's a, it's a food nutrient component that has been isolated. It's not a hormone or anything like that. So whether or not I got slightly better gains, uh, for 10 days or six days or something like that back in 2004 means literally nothing today. Um, but you do, it does cost, you know, multiple times as much to take 25 grams a day for a week rather than taking five grams a day. So it is really inefficient from a cost perspective. It's more likely to produce gastrointestinal distress and probably any performance gain you would get from having slightly higher muscle creatine stores might be nullified by the, the gastrointestinal discomfort if you do experience it. So I think the best recommendation is not to load and just take five grams a day or five grams on workout days until, until you stop wanting to take creatine, which for me has, has not happened yet. It's been 19 years. So yeah. Well, the other supplement that I wanted to talk about is, I uh, just from personal experience, probably just as much discussed as creatine, but might be on the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe we'll get we'll we'll, we'll get to that of its efficacy to creatine, and that's branched chain amino acids, uh, which 
Am I correct? Did you also write this article recently in... I have written about BCAs. I've done a video on BCAs in mass and I can't remember when I did uh I think I wrote a th- I think I wrote an article on BCAs just at the end of last year, so like December. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so that's the art- that's the 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 issue that I was looking at then. So branched chain amino acids, what are they because everybody sells them. I mean, there are there are way more <laughs> branch chain amino acid brands out there than there are creatine brands i'd say but, but that's an empirical question and it doesn't matter that much but what what are they and how efficacious are or aren't they yeah good question so the the branched chain amino acids are called branched chain specifically because of their chemical structure so when you look at like if you go back to high school chemistry would you draw you know, chemical structures, they have kind of like a branched arm and and they're described that way. So they have a, a similarly structured chemical side chain. And the three amino acids, which are, that have that structure are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Um, and these are three of the uh, essential amino acids. Um, you, your listeners, if they're interested in lifting, may have heard of leucine, which is often, often seen as the uh, kind of the anabolic trigger that initiates muscle protein synthesis. Um, and uh, isoleucine and valine are other essential amino acids. Um, so branched chain amino acids have gotten a little more, uh, they've, they've, they've believed to be a, or the, the rationale for why they might be a successful ergogenic supplement is for two reasons. One, they are essential amino acids. And the term essential in nutrition just means they must be supplied by the diet, uh, meaning we can't produce them uh, inside of us. We, we insufficient quantities, at least we need to get them from our diet. So that's, that's one kind of, you know, tick in the corner of, Hey, this might be useful to supplement with. The next one is that, you know, one of the branched chain amino acids is leucine, which has a specific and largest effect and kind of triggering effect on initiating muscle protein synthesis. You can't hit the highest values of muscle protein synthesis or really turn it on if you remove leucine from an essential amino acid blend. Right. Um, and then the final piece is that they're, they're metabolized a little different than other, not all amino acids, but many amino acids. So they're specifically oxidized in muscle rather than having to go through the liver. So they are a, a faster quote unquote fuel. So they might potentially contribute meaningfully to metabolism, uh, muscle metabolism while training. Um, and we do see that BCA oxidation rates increase with exercise. So for, for those like three reasons, people have been like, hey, BCAs, this might be a good thing. Muscle protein synthesis. Uh, you know, something we don't get in our diet unless, you know, you know, very easily and, you know, it might actually help us perform acutely better. Um, so, yeah. And, and interestingly enough, it's even more confusing if you were to dig into the literature. Like if you were to look at uh, some of the meta-analyses on BCAAs, either looking at acute increases in performance or even uh, reductions in soreness or muscle damage, the meta-analyses say, hey, BCAAs are better than placebo. But I think that's a really important distinction that they're being compared to placebo, right? So protein contains amino acids. So if you eat a chicken breast, if you have some whey, if you have some milk, if you have a vegan protein, you're getting a pretty large dosage of BCAAs, right? And so the the kind of the, the barrier we have to clear is not just that there's a mechanistic rationale. There's a mechanistic rationale for for a ton of things like vitamin C, you know, um, and, and, but the data on vitamin C is, is not great, you know, like, cause guess what? All the things that are in dietary supplements are in the food supply. So if you have a balanced diet, 
is supplementing your diet, which is the question we need to ask, benefiting you? And if you have a sufficient protein intake, which we already talked about, the question is, do BCAAs benefit you? So sure, if you supplement people with BCAAs and you compare it to nothing, sometimes they do better, not always. And in fact, if you look at the research where the individuals in the study were already consuming a sufficiently high protein intake, that's when you don't see a benefit of BCAAs. So uh, the, the, the review in mass, which you were specifically referring to, is of a really good systematic review by, I think, Martino and colleagues um, that came out in 2022, and it's titled Oral Branch Chain Amino Acid Supplementation in Athletes, a Systematic Review. And their conclusion with this note that was that there's no evidence that BCAs enhance, enhance athletic performance, uh, but they may enhance recovery. However, uh, when assessing studies in which protein isn't matched or controlled, there are no studies that I'm aware of still to date that show an advantage of taking BCAAs. So when a high protein diet is consumed, you're already getting sufficient BCAAs. Um, and when they actually do a comparison of say BCAAs to whey or essential amino acids, either acutely looking at mechanistic things like increases in muscle protein synthesis or looking at actual outcomes, you either see an equivalence or a superiority of whole protein or the entire complement of eight essential amino acids. And you can get higher muscle protein synthesis rates with having the whole complement of essential amino acids. So BCAAs are, this isn't their heyday right now. We're actually on the downswing. Um, if you were to be around say 2005 in the lifting community and we actually have surveys from that time period. So like 2005 to like 2013, 12, somewhere in there, that's when BCAs were crushing it in terms of sales and the marketing was huge. And if you talk to a bodybuilder, that's one of their supplements they absolutely had. You know, they're, they got this big ass jug of either green or pink liquid, which is basically a gallon of water mixed with like 50 grams of BCAs that they sip throughout the day, right? And it's their anti-catabolic juice, you know, and then that's what, if you surveyed bodybuilders, they believed, hey, this is preventing muscle loss. Um there was something like 60 to 70% of all bodybuilders were supplementing with BCAAs. Now, if you look at studies uh, or surveys in, in the modern era, that's dropped to down to like 30%. So the hype has started to, to fall away. The research has not backed up the claims when you look at it from a more well-controlled perspective of, of controlling for protein. Uh, there was more people taking BCAAs in 2012 than there were creatine, which is wild when you think about it. It shows how much hype and marketing can influence people. But now those rates are a little more reasonable. We see uh, BCAA has fallen substantially, but there's still that, you know, I can't remember whose law it is, but the, the amount of effort it takes to dispel a myth versus to generate it is some, an order of magnitude higher, 100% true in the bodybuilding community. So there's people who got exposed to enough to convince them 15 years ago, and they're going to be taking BCAAs until they, you know, croak. So is what it is. But yeah, the data is really doesn't back it up. You're getting plenty of BCAs if you just consume a high protein diet. Yeah. Much of what Eric Trexler and I spoke about were the pitfalls or dangers of taking mechanistic evidence or research or reasoning and projecting that onto ecological validity. There isn't just some easy route from going uh, from mechanistic, mechanistic evidence to ecological validity. And, and this is a a good exemplar for that. Now, that is a more theoretical topic. And I wanted to switch 
to another more theoretical topic, and that is the meta-analysis, which isn't just important in sports and exercise science, but all throughout science. But how do they typically work in sports science? So I alluded to this a little bit when we were talking about how we derive our protein recommendations, which I thought the best place to be meta-analyses. And the reason why is that, um, you know, you've probably heard of the the replication crisis in, in the social sciences, uh, the idea that when you repeat a study, uh, you don't always find the same results. So that's a, re, you know, it's a reproducibility issue, right? Or I should say a replication issue. Um, and that is something that is probably true in any field where you have low sample size studies. Um, uh, because there's a number of factors that, that come together. So one of them is there's a bias towards publishing novel or significant or interesting findings, which typically means they need to be significant. So crossing the P equals 0.05 or less threshold if you're using traditional statistical designs. Um, and non-significant findings are more likely to not be published. So in a meta-analysis, sometimes you'll see what's called a funnel plot. And they try to see, hey, is there a relatively normal distribution of findings in this area? And if they're not, if they're shifted outside of that funnel, it indicates that there might be what's called publication bias, which means there's a lot of studies which might have found null findings or no significant difference between groups that were not published and just kind of stayed in the proverbial file drawer, which is an outdated reference. They stayed on a cloud drive, not getting published now, I guess, in 2023. Uh, while the significant findings are being published and it's shifting our overall estimate of the effect to be higher than it actually is. So all these factors are at play. Um, low sample size studies, publication bias, um, and also an issue that I mentioned earlier tangentially uh, that we're not often doing true random sampling. You know, here, here's an easy example. If you want to do a survey in any field now, the common thing you do is you share it on social media. So when I share surveys on my social media, I, have, I might have a large number of followers, 170,000 on Instagram, for example, but I have a disproportionately high group of people who lift weights and are interested in science or why the hell would they be following me, right? So for example, I, I shared a study and probably contributed to it like a third of its, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 respondents in a survey on, on coaches. And I recently saw the results in something like 60% of the coaches had a master's degree or a PhD that absolutely does not represent most sports coaches, right? So you can see that by using the tools we have to distribute data, we're getting less randomized samples. So that means that the sampling variance, which just means if we were to repeat a study and resample the same population, you're going to get some degree of variation in the findings. Sometimes it can push it the other way we're not really doing a random sample. So the assumptions of how normative and representative uh, the data are is also in question. Um, you know, the way that you used to do a survey in say 1980 would be you'd go down to the mall and you'd, you'd go, this is probably a random sample. I'm just going to ask every fifth person a question, right? Because everybody needs to shop and the mall has all kinds of stores. There's probably some segment of the population that is not mall goers, right? So maybe we're like social recluses are not being represented. So it's not a perfectly random sample, but it's different. And it was probably better than we have now. So most of the time what we're doing is convenient sampling. You know, we have access to a team or we have access to a few gyms, et cetera. So we can get quasi random samples. And we're also 
getting small sample sizes. So that means if another research group in a different you know, environment with a different team or a different gym or a different gym culture or a different region or a different time of year, so less people are actually at the gym, you know, like if you go to a gym in January versus November, you're going to get two to two very different populations, right? January, everybody who's decided because of the new year, they want to be in the gym. November, hey, this is the hardcore people. Like most people are thinking about going on vacation or it's, you know, they're thinking about, you know, Thanksgiving in the States. If you're going to the gym in, in mid to late, you know, uh, December and, 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 and November, you've probably been training the whole year, right? So anyway, point is, all of these issues combine to leading us to have representation issues, like does our sample actually represent the larger population we're sampling from, and replication issues. So when someone else samples it, they don't get the same findings necessarily, even when they repeat our study designs or they, or they measure similar values because of those issues. So the closest workaround we have in sports science is the meta-analysis, where we take all those various studies together and we increase our uh, our, our N so that we can essentially have a study of studies or we turn a bunch of small, not necessarily replicable RCTs into something that should be more representative. And we can then assess the veracity of those findings by looking at things like the funnel plot to seeing how much heterogeneity there is between studies, which can be represented by various statistics like an I-squared score. Um, and then we can actually have more confidence in being able to represent the actual estimates of effects of different interventions. So the effect of a high protein diet on muscle gain, the effect of creatine on increases in power, uh, the effect of uh, you know BCAAs compared to placebo on DOMS, et cetera. And for the most part, when I make broad recommendations and statements about how we believe the world of nutrition and training to operate, I'm trying to base that on the most recently well done meta-analyses. The other problem though, is that in our field of sports science, we typically have lower than average uh, quality training and statistics. Um, and, and that makes sense if you think about who sports scientists are. Most of us are former athletes, former coaches, and sports interested people who also have an empirical mindset. And there's a lot to learn in sports science. I, I think it's, it's easy and sometimes I do it for fun. I take shots at sports science as a science, you know, um, because it's not, astrophysics. It's not, it's not astronomy. It's not geology. It's not one of these highly technical sciences, but there is a lot to learn. Um, it's an applied science, which means we need to understand people. We need to develop people's skills. Uh, we need to have an understanding of what's going on in the trenches and also how to do it in the lab. And we need to have a connection between what's going on in the quote unquote real world and what's going on in the lab so that our research is actually impactful and actually can be translated into practice. So as an applied researcher, it feels like a softer science sometimes, but at the same time, it requires more skills and kind of this uh, stereotype of the lab coat exercise scientist, in my experience, it's pretty damn rare. There's very few people who want to get a PhD in exercise physiology, exercise science, or especially strength and conditioning who weren't a personal trainer, who weren't an athlete, who aren't still athletes, personal trainer, coaches. People think I'm like the rarity. Oh, he's a bodybuilder, he's a coach, and he's also you know, a researcher, it's very common to find people who, if they're not still doing that, they did at one point venture into those other realms. If they're in the field of strength and conditioning, they might've been a PE teacher for a long time and then got into research, et cetera. So it's, I, it's an interesting field, but one of the things that is typically weak 
is meta-science, teaching people how to do science really, really well in strength and conditioning. Um, and one of those areas that is weak is meta-analysis. And there are very few people in our field of sports science who are good at doing meta-analyses. I can put up a convincing front that I know about them just by talking about it conceptually, but I couldn't run a meta-analysis. When I need to do a meta-analysis, I reach out to Eric Trexler, or I reach out to James Steele, or I reach out to James Krieger. Um, those are three people, for example, who have st the statistical chops to do it well. And uh, when I get asked to be a peer reviewer on a meta-analysis, I always make sure I ask the, the editor, hey, the other reviewer needs to know the stats because I don't. I, I can I can do the general checklist of like, hey, is there a funnel plot analysis? Like, was this fixed effects or random effects and was that appropriate for it? But it's very surface and it catches the the big errors that, that should be caught. But if I'm the only person uh, who is, you know, if the other person has the same statistical chops as I do, there could be a major error that slips through peer review. So it's, it's one of those things where the majority of meta-analyses in our field contain some errors. Um, it doesn't mean that the majority can't be trusted. Uh, I think the findings probably in the majority are more or less accurate, uh, but this is a, a consistent problem that's only starting to be corrected. Like the quality of meta-analyses in my subjective opinion has been improving the last five to six years, but we had a whole lot of not great meta-analyses for a while. And um, it's something that if you don't know how to pick up on it, you can't. So meta-analyses, they're the top of the evidence hierarchy. You know, they're like one step above RCTs, but if they're done wrong, they can't be in that position. So a more accurate revision to that hierarchy of evidence is a well-done, accurately portrayed meta-analysis is the top of the evidence hierarchy. Um, but that's not always the case, unfortunately. You just mentioned Eric Trexler. Eric wrote the article, a recent article reviewing uh, meta-analyses in mass. And something he wrote that jumped out at me is that the presently reviewed paper assessed the 20 most cited meta-analyses in the field of strength and conditioning. After critically appraising these meta-analyses, the researchers found that 85% of them contained at least one statistical error. So I recently interviewed a a philosopher of science. His name is David Papineau. He's in the UK. He's really great. He's actually also at CUNY in New York, but we were talking about the replication crisis. And he said exactly what you said, that the problem with the replication, well, what has produced the replication crisis is it's not just in sports science, but it is uh, a problem with statistics everywhere, uh, elsewhere as well. And what I'm wondering, though, uh, just particularly about the impact this has had on sports science. And so Eric said 85% of these 20 very cited meta-analyses contained a statistical error in them. Do any meta-analyses in particular come to mind for you? We don't have to name names or anything, or maybe you could just say more broadly, ways in which they've negatively impacted the field or perhaps set it back a few years if they're these huge major um, uh, major papers. Yeah. So I think I think it is important to to note a couple things here. Um, there, this is a great study if anyone wants to read it. Uh, it is by Cadlick and colleagues. With great power comes great responsibility, common errors in meta-analyses and meta-regressions and strength conditioning research. And that is what they did was they assessed, like you said, 20 of the most cited meta-analyses in SNC. And then got a list of errors 
And okay, how many did they apply to? And while they did apply to 85% of these 20, um, so 17, it doesn't mean that they were in all cases critical errors, which if corrected would have changed the outcome. So I think it's easy to kind of look at this in a dichotomous fashion and say, oh man, only three out of 20 meta-analyses are right. But I would say the majority of them are probably right enough. So it's, it's, it's good to, it's good to kind of like, that's a sobering reality. Like it's, there's a lot of places to make a statistical error in a meta-analysis. Not all of them are going to be critical. Like one of the most common things is simply mistaking uh, standard deviations for standard errors, which can really inflate the effect of that one study. So you might make that error, but then later you decide to do the statistical procedure of the leave one out analysis, which is you uh, calculate the effect with everything in there. And then you see if any single study is weighting the outcome. So that one method would correct that error by, so let's say, for example, there's a study where they use the, the standard error instead of the standard deviation, really inflated effect size. And because of that study being in there, we found a, a medium effect when actually there was a negligible effect, right? Then you do the leave one out analysis, that one, you pull it out and you go, oh, it drops it back to negligible. This study had an undue influence and you report both. And the more accurate interpretation is, hey, we shouldn't really let one study completely influence the meta-analysis of these 20 studies. So that would still count as an error. And that's one of the ones that was observed in like 45% of the studies, uh, you know, confusing standard deviation for standard errors. But then another thing they did would correct for it. So there are some, I guess you could say checks and balances in place. Um, but uh, some of them absolutely were, uh, you, know, you know, make that mistake. And that, that's probably the most common one is not identifying uh, where a standard error was reported versus a standard deviation. Um, another really common one, and this is kind of wild to me, is that you can tell when the person doing the meta-analysis knows what they're supposed to do, but they don't know why or what to do with it. So um, the funnel plot that I talked about, when you actually look at a figure of a funnel plot in a meta-analysis, uh, it, it looks kind of like a T and then you have a, like a triangle and you're supposed to see that all the studies are within that triangle. And if they're outside of it, it just means that their standard errors are way higher than you'd expect. And they're considered outlier studies relevant to the whole body of research. And therefore we're probably seeing some type of publication bias. But then you statistically correct for that. You do something about it. You either decide, no, we can't do this meta-analysis or you try to account for it. Um, but sometimes you'll see the people they know to do the funnel plot analysis. They show it. There's a crap ton of of of, of these outliers, and then they just carry on and do the, do, do it anyway because so they don't know what it means or why. They just know, hey, I followed the checklist in my statistical manual, but I didn't do anything, even though the standardized mean difference was off the chart for these two or three or four studies. So those are some common things, um, and and you can also see that when you just look at a forest plot when you have like these standardized mean differences, which all kind of, you know, they, they cluster around the center line of there being a small effect, negative or positive. And then there's one that is like way to the right and they're reporting some massively huge effect size. Those are the ones where you would think, okay, that's probably a standard error, not a standard deviation. Let me dig into that. Let me write the authors, but the person doesn't do that. They just go, right, let me average it. So those are the most common things I've seen and that uh, in consultation with Eric, he would probably agree uh, would be the most common errors. Um, and the degree to which they influence the outcome depends on other things the authors do. So, you know, the good news is that 
you know, like most of the time, if you're an undergrad student, you get told by your, your teacher, like, hey, I want you to cite the most recent research. That bothers me sometimes because research doesn't expire. Like a study, a well-done study in 1985 on the effects of creatine on strength are just as valid as one done in 2023. If they had similar samples, research was done well, one RM testing was done well, the creatine actually was creatine, you know, whatever. However, if you're going to cite a meta-analysis, if you set a, cite a meta-analysis from 2004 versus one from 2023, and they both exist, I'm going to be like, why? Because the 2023 should contain all of the research that happened since. So science self-corrects, but it's like a very, very slow turning ship, you know? So there's an iceberg out there, but we're going to turn it a little earlier. We're not Titanic at the moment, you know? So I think um, we are seeing that ship turn and we are seeing, if I, I, if I was to guess, if we were to do the most cited meta-analyses of the last five years and we looked at a study now, it would be fewer than the five years prior, just based upon what I've seen. So I think there are tools to correct for these issues and it is important to be aware of them. Um, and there is some barrier of entry with how do I even assess this? But the good news is this is like a known talked about issue in sports science right now. And like you said, broadly in more science in, in science in general, anytime, you know, this, this, this replication crisis started in the social sciences hasn't actually been measured in sports science, by the way. We just know we're probably victim of the same issue for the same reasons because they're present in our field. So it's something that is um, actively being worked on. And the average meta-analysis, if you ask me to bet what's the probability that its findings are correct today, I'd say it's probably right. If you say, what's the probability it has an error? I'd say it probably has an error too, but it, the estimate's probably still accurate despite that error in most cases. Well, Eric, we've got our... Our vegetables, we've got our dessert. Uh, this was great. You're an excellent communicator. I definitely, in the introduction, and again now, will be recommending that my audience head right over to Iron Culture, the show that you co-host with Omar Isif, because it is absolutely great. Along with uh, Stronger by Science, the they're the two my two go-to uh, strength and fitness podcasts. So again, thanks so much for having this conversation with me. Oh, it's a true pleasure. And it's a, a true honor to be on with some of the awesome guests you've had. And I just appreciate the good questions and the, and the dialogue. So thank you. Hold on, Geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats. Please do so.